0: Hey, This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Okay, it is 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, according to my computer. Welcome to the regular Monday night class of Against the Stream. Um, if you're new, uh, welcome and- 7.30 PM. Oh shit, hold on. Pacific Standard Time, according to my computer. Welcome to the- Okay, at the double feedback. Um, if you're new, Uh, Again, welcome. And um, we're a regular meditation group. We meet every Monday. We start with a period of meditation, guided meditation, usually about 30 minutes or so. I'll give instructions. Even if you're new, it's appropriate. You can follow along. And then we'll follow up with a uh, talk, a Buddhist lecture, what we call a Dharma talk, and some uh, discussion. This um, next, I don't know, couple, few months, I'm going through uh, my book, The Heart of the Revolution, kind of uh, chapter by chapter, not so much as a book study, more just as a guide of the topics that I'm going to be giving talks on and practice about. Um, The book is mostly about loving kindness and what we call the heart practices, developing compassion and equanimity, appreciation, uh, also, forgiveness and um, and loving kindness. So we'll be practicing in that kind of mode for the next I don't know two, three, four months. However long it takes to get through it, however slow I uh, go through the process. Since we haven't quite opened up to the heart practices yet, uh, I'll stick with the mindfulness instruction for tonight and my own sense and my teacher's sense is that mindfulness, which is bringing the attention to the, the present, to the here and now, uh, works best if you bring an attitude of kindness, an attitude of friendless, friendliness, um, of uh, patience and acceptance. If we bring a kind of a gentle and accepting aspiration to our meditation practice, then the whole thing unfolds much better. Sometimes we can get a little too uh, eager, or a little too, too much effort, and um, people end up turning meditation into another way to judge ourselves, another thing to fail at, <laughs> rather than a, a very healthy uh, long-term process of, of training the mind. So uh, again, everybody welcome and glad you're with us. Um, uh, Try to stay for the whole class if you can, hear the talk, hear the discussion. And um, we'll begin with a period of sitting meditation. So find a way to sit that is upright and relaxed. Find a place in your space. Maybe you're already there. In your chair, on your couch on your bed, wherever you're sitting, and arrange your posture so that your body is upright without being rigid or stiff, so that we're sitting in a relaxed, upright posture. And allowing the eyes to be gently closed. We turn the attention inward into the body with the intention to be patient and accepting and kind towards whatever we experience, towards our minds, our bodies, our emotions. Releasing any physical tension that you can release, softening the brow, the eyes, the jaw, Releasing any tension in the neck or shoulders, if you can, let the shoulders just fall a little bit more away from the ears towards the earth. Breathing in, feel the breath as it enters the body through the nostrils. And breathing out See if you can soften further the trunk of the body, the belly, soft belly. letting the thoughts be in the background, letting the sounds be in the background, directing our attention to the sensations that the breath creates. We start with mindfulness of breathing. Not trying to stop the mind, but we are trying to stop paying attention to the thoughts of future and past and bring our full attention to the present. The simple anchor experience in the present of the breath coming and going. Breathing in, what lets you know that you're breathing in? What do you feel? Breathing out, what lets you know that you're breathing out? How do you receive the sensations as the breath comes and goes? When the attention is drawn away from the breath, as it will be naturally. Just acknowledge where it's going back into thinking. No need to judge it or fight with your mind. Just acknowledge thinking. Name it with a friendly, accepting tone in your own heart and mind, if you can. And then come back to the breath disengage from that thought, setting it aside, not now, come back to the breath. keeping our attention in the body, with the breath as the anchor, but other sensations as well. Know that you're sitting, feel the contact with the cushion, the chair. We'll bring mindfulness to the breath coming and going, but it's really to the whole body, sitting, breathing, This is the first foundation of mindfulness practice where we attune to our physical form, this body, the sense door of feeling the body. Feeling a breath or two, and then the mind wanders. Acknowledging thinking, returning to the breath. Experiment with noting in and out with each breath, or counting the breath up to 10. That can help you gather the attention, stay more present with the breath. more embodied, more here, the whole body, head to toe, arms and legs, hands and feet, filled with sensations. Expand from the breath. Investigate the body, right here and now, what sensations are present in your feet, your legs, All of the touch points where the body is touching the chair, the seat that you're on. Contact of Our hands resting on the lap, on the legs. Arms resting against the trunk of the body. And feel your clothing rubbing against your skin. As the torso expands and contracts with each breath, feel the shirt rubbing. eyes closed, contact, eyelid, lips, likely touching tongue, resting in the palate, Keep on disengaging from your mind, returning to your body. In one teaching, the Buddha said that all of the dharma, all of the liberating truth, will be revealed right here in this body. Pay that close of attention to your body. As though everything that you're seeking is right here, not we're going to think our way to it, but that we're going to feel it right here in the body we're going to know it directly. We're all addicted to our minds and get seduced back into thinking. Just the way it is, just acknowledge thinking, planning, remembering, hope, fear, worry, whatever the mind is doing, you don't have to stop it. It's so important to see that you can choose to return to the body, disengage. Reconnect with the breath, the body sitting. Feel the impermanent nature of each breath. How each breath is different than the last. A beginning, middle, end, a new texture, temperature, depth. Investigate the body, use your mind to inquire, to investigate the here and now, to contemplate what's happening, what you're feeling, as we open to the second level, the second foundation of mindfulness in the body, what's pleasant, what's unpleasant, what's neutral, Identifying your own perception of each breath, the contact with the seat. anything unpleasant we learn to tolerate to meet with mercy and compassion knowing that it's impermanent that this pain will change will pass just sit with it tolerate it with mindfulness Anything that's pleasant you can direct your attention to, also in permanent changing. So we try to meet it with non-attached appreciation, enjoying the pleasant moments as they come and go Ultimately, we need to learn to meet our pain with compassion. Mindfulness helps us do that as we turn towards the reality of the impermanent, unpleasant sensations in the body. We learn tolerance, which leads to mercy and compassion. softening into each moment, just as it is. The ache in the back, the pain in the knees, the loud mind, the worried heart. All met with acceptance, friendliness. Right now, it's like this. For the last couple of minutes, stop trying to be present, relax, maybe even shift your posture without opening your eyes. Feel the sensations of moving, stretching, releasing pain and pay attention. Where does that, if your body was uncomfortable, where does it go? How quickly does it dissipate? And when you're ready, you can allow your eyes to be open. Bring your attention back to the room, wherever you be. I'm going to begin this, um, well, we really, we began last week with the intro to the heart of the revolution. And as I've said, you know, the, the core of this um, teaching is about the importance of loving kindness, the importance of compassion, the importance of non-attached appreciation and forgiveness and, you know, what we call heart practices, this um, uh, emotional uh, intelligence, this ability to meet life in a intelligently emotional response, the response that uh, doesn't cause suffering, the response that ends suffering. But the book begins, and I'll begin tonight with this uh, you know, first chapter, which is about why is it so difficult? And even just thinking about that for a moment, like why? Why isn't it easy to just be compassionate? You know that compassion's the right thing to do, right? <laughs> like, uh, you know, you, you know that we should just meet pain with compassion. Um, we should just be kind. Kindness is the right thing to do. Why is it so difficult to be kind sometimes? Uh, forgiveness is the right thing to do rather than holding on to our resentments and suffering about them. Just let go. Uh, non attachment, right? Like it's the, the right, you know, the wisest, most appropriate thing to do is uh, not cling. So simple be compassionate you know like to, you know if we had to break it down into two skills i mean there's more maybe we'd say three which is meet everything unpleasant inside of you and in the world with compassion <laughs> everything unpleasant both internally and externally meet it with compassion and you won't suffer about it you'll just care about it no suffering Meet everything pleasant internally and externally with non-attachment. Stop clinging. You won't suffer. You'll stop suffering. And then, you know, maybe the ultimate, which is a bit encompassing of of those first two, which is uh, stop taking everything so personal. Realize that this Self-centered, I-me-mine existence is a setup for suffering. So stop taking it all so personal. (laughs) Uh, Wouldn't it be nice if you could just make those decisions from now on? There's so many like self-help books that are written in that sort of ridiculous. Just don't take things personally. (laughs) As if we can stop. As if it's just a decision we can make. So obviously, I I, I imagine everybody kind of understands this already. It's not just a decision we can make, or we all would have made it, right? Wouldn't you have already just been like, fuck, I'm not going to hate anymore. I'm going to meet everything and everyone with love. (laughs) I'm going to be kind all of the time to myself and everyone else. I'm going to have non-attachment. I'm going to have Integrity. I'm going to have renunciation when that's appropriate, and you know, indulging when that's appropriate. If it, if it was just a, a decision we could make, one of the reasons why the Buddha said this path goes against the stream is because reality is shit ain't like that. You can't just make those decisions. Compassion. True deep compassion is uh, in many ways counter to our own survival instincts. Non attachment is for sure counter against our own survival instincts. And, you know, not taking everything personal. is not a, is is against, you know, this sort of I, me, mine is, again, it's this sort of instinctual drive. We're born into a self-centered system. Our operating system (laughs) that is just in us, is just implanted in us, is one of self-centered craving and aversion. So the good news is, and I hope this, resonates. I I like it to frame it like this. The good news is it's not your fault. It's not just that you've been doing it all wrong and that's why you've been suffering. It's not your fault. This is the Buddha's first noble truth. Suffering is normal. Stress and unhappiness and grief and sorrow and the norm is what humanity is born into not your fault not just because you've been extra (laughs) self-centered but maybe (laughs) the setup is that we are born into a uh, you know the Buddha never really explains this but here's how I kind of get my mind around it he never really asks the like well why are he never really answers the question well why are we born into a body that craves pleasure and hates pain and is self-centered why are we born like why aren't humans you know I, I guess the way that I would frame it is like why haven't we evolved yet into beings that are compassionate why haven't we you know why why are humans still in this you know sort of base uh, kind of gross state of greed hatred and delusion why do you know what, don't you want to know why <laughs> i do <laughs> but the buddha never answers he never really tells us why he just says this is the way it is Here we are, why isn't really the right answer or the right question? The right question is, what the fuck are we gonna do about it? This is the way it is, I crave pleasure, I hate pain, I take everything personal and I suffer and I don't wanna suffer anymore. How do I break this self-centered craving and aversion? reality cycle that that we all have been born into. So he doesn't answer the the why but um, what I believe and what uh, evolutionary biology, you know, kind of borrowing from the scientists <laughs> breaking out of the Buddhists and borrowing from you know, the education resources that we have. Biological evolution over millions of years is that we have a survival instinct. We have natural selection. We have craving for pleasure as a biological imperative to reproduce to exist not personal it's not not anybody's fault just the way it is just how we have evolved and we haven't evolved to the place where we feel so uh you know abundant and so safe and so whatever we want to Call it that we're no longer constantly fueled by craving and aversion. We're still. Neuroscience says that, like, um, you know, the majority of our thoughts are still fueled by what they call the reptile brain. And it's the amygdala, that part of our brain that, uh, you know, is fight or flight, is craving, aversion, is you know, self-centeredness, resentment, all, you know, revenge. That the majority of our thoughts are coming from that instinctual survival instinct, part of the brain. And the fact that they call it the reptilian, the reptilian, it's because it's the same exact brain that we share, that same instinct that we share with, reptiles, that we share with fish, that we share with uh, all, you know, I don't know how small the uh, living being has to get before it no longer has that, but I think it's just that fight or flight survival instinct that all sentient beings have. Now we have these big human neocortexes where we have, expanded consciousness and great memories and ability to fantasize and creativity and, you know, the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere. We have this big, a big brain. <laughs> My uh, friend, Wes Nisker, Dharma teacher, Wes Nisker, uh, was you know, and he, he's one of the teachers that inspired me that's really into this a biological evolutionary perspective on humanity and how we can, you know, in order to really, what, part of what we're really trying to do in Dharma practice is actually evolve, not stay stuck in this place that the human homo sapiens are kind of stuck in of greed, hatred and delusion, but actually evolve into uh, awakened beings. The, the, there is this potential to train the mind so thoroughly that we respond differently that we actually you know the whole conversation that we actually have compassion that we actually can practice non-attachment that we actually learn to not take it all so personal and suffer about it and Oh, and he was saying that, you know, whatever it is, 80, 90% of our, uh, the, you know, majority of our thoughts are are fueled by this self-centered, fear-based part of the mind, um, and that most of what we use our kind of right, you know, hemisphere, left hemisphere, neocortex, of, is to make excuses for <laughs> why we're having these thoughts and feelings, to judge it, to... You know create philosophies around it to you know justify like why do we have so much lust and fear and you know we've created whole religions about it assigned it all to you know sin and you know <laughs> demons and rather than just yeah it's just just a brain just what a brain does not that personal um So we're up against our own biology. And it's not unsurmountable. This is the Buddha's teaching. We can, even though suffering is the norm, first noble truth, we can get free from suffering in this lifetime. It is possible. But that we have this dilemma of the reality is everything's impermanent, which half of the time is good news. Aren't you grateful for impermanence when shit's difficult? When life is painful? When your knee aches in the middle of meditation and you're like, well, you know, well, it's impermanent. (laughs) It will last forever. Impermanence, like the reality, the irrefutable law of nature is everything is impermanent. But our instincts, our craving, our tendency to cling, right, the second noble truth, why do we suffer? Because we don't live in harmony with impermanence because we're clinging to impermanent experiences, people, places, things, uh, thoughts, emotions, situations. Our instinct is to get attached, is to cling. Our instinct is to push away anything that's unpleasant, to suppress, avoid, medicate, justify, rationalize. So we're in this setup where our internal wiring creates suffering. The natural human tendency is to suffer about the painful shit that's happening and to get attached to the pleasant experiences that are happening. In order to get free, in order to change our relationship to this human mind and body and instinctual drives and the Buddha says, let's unpack what's really going on here. Um, And he says, there's only five things. If you uh, really look at why we are suffering, he says, we're suffering because of our um, misidentification, our personalizing an attachment to or aversion to the body so and it's where we spent most of our meditation tonight just just being mindful what's happening in your body breath coming and going sensations so just reflect for a moment how how identified with your body are you how much do you think i am this body this is who i am this is what i am this is how this body feels dictates whether I'm happy or I'm unhappy. If I'm healthy, and then I'm happy. If I'm sick, I'm unhappy. If I'm in pain, I'm unhappy. If my body is experiencing pleasure, that's good. <laughs> I like that. If my body is experiencing pain, I suffer about it. I hate it. So all of that is around this first, what's called skanda or heap or pile of the human experience, our body. But what is this body really? The, you know, the, the way that the Buddha breaks it down, he says, what, what's going on here really? Just the four elements. This body that we take so personally, that we become so identified with, that we are born into, that we... Age in that we are, I don't know, custodians of this body. Just the four elements. There's the earth element and there's the air and fire and water element. And when, you know, when we're uh, fetuses, when we're, you know, in the uh, gestation and, and, you know, kind of uh, growth maturation process in our mother's stomachs. It's, you know, just the four elements, you know, her body is the four elements, and then she's eating the four elements, all of the, the food that is created based on the four elements, and then that forms our body, and this, this body is the four elements. And this is one of the um, things to, to reflect on and to practice with. This is part of the first foundation of mindfulness, to see the body, to experience the body, to reflect these four elements that make up this body are the same four elements that make up everything in existence. We can feel so separate, so uh, disconnected from each other, so disconnected from nature, so disconnected from but we're actually completely the same substance. Four elements, experiencing the four elements in all of these different uh, forms. This human body is impermanent constantly changing it's one of again one of the reasons why we bring mindfulness to to the body as i said in the instructions tonight the body itself will reveal if we pay close attention what do you see in your body impermanent sensations arising and passing Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant, some are neutral, but it's all impermanent and it's constantly changing. Although our perception isn't, our perception isn't sometimes sharp enough to see the impermanent. So we kind of get this delusion of like, this one's really lasting. (laughs) This one's really sustaining for a long time. Um, But if, uh, you know, the sharper our concentration, the sharper our perception, the more we see the subtle reality of impermanent sensations and the more we start to see this body is truly just the four elements. So one of the, uh, in order to get free, in order to wake up, we have to change our relationship to the body. We have to start to see this body is not m- my s- true self. It's not who I actually am. It's a temporary, impermanent, unfolding, you know, from birth, it's changing, maturing, growing. And we we have this Memory, which is one of the other uh, skandhas, piles. We have this memory, so we think like, oh yeah, I remember being a kid. But because of impermanence and cellular regeneration, and there's nothing left in your body from when you were a child. Not one cell. Nothing left but memories. Just just mental impressions that's not you know that's gone just living in the mind now this body is constantly changing and then I I forget how old it is but it's younger than you'd think when your body starts to decay first it's like you know you're a kid and you're growing up and the body is growing and then at some point I think it's like early 20s maybe and from there like from there on out All the body's doing is decaying. (laughs) It's just fucking gravity is just winning slowly (laughs) from, I don't know, somebody probably knows the age, it's like 22 or something like that on, you're just dying, (laughs) you're just decaying. Um, But we're so attached, right? And how much do we attach, how much do we suffer about craving for, clinging to wanting a body to stay young? that has no ability to stay young. How much do we get, and you know, I think it's easy to talk about our materialists youth culture. Maybe it's not true everywhere, um, but certainly America is a, a glaring uh, example of, you know, youth culture where uh there's very little respect for the elderly there's very little you know uh, death is needs to be dressed up and put makeup on and make them look as young as possible and um bodies are supposed to you know stay young <laughs> it's what it's what's healthy it's what's sexy it's what's desirable rather than accepting like nope, we're just aging bodies that's what's happening here not so personal not so uh, and and truly unavoidable you know and just so I just need to reflect a little bit on where you're at I think that there's many stages of our relationship to our own bodies and a pretty common Uh, shift that does happen as you meditate more as you wake up more to the reality to the nature of impermanence and change sickness and aging and death of a physical body that we start to um, be less identified with the body less uh, vanity less um, attachment more acceptance now, that doesn't mean that um, we shouldn't eat the green stuff and exercise and you know, do what we can to keep a healthy body, right? i I, I kind of think of um, think of our role with our our body as uh, I don't know if this fits or not, but like as a custodian, as like a steward, like this body is not who we actually are, but it is what we are going to experience our life through. So of course, do what we can to uh, stay healthy while accepting that the, as, as we age, or, you know we're gonna have more and more limitations um, and we're not gonna be able to have the, you know we just won't have the energy that we had when we were younger, as we get older, that just is part of aging and we accept that. So this whole first reality is we're in this body and we're in this body driven by a uh, survival instinct that is out of whack with impermanence. Then uh, part two, number you know number two, I don't know if I'll get all the way through all five, but we'll see. body and then mind. Your mind, we ha- we're born as I was talking about, these brains with the survival instinct, the fight or flight, the craving, the aversion, the self-centered tendency of the human mind. There's a body, there's a mind. And the mind uh, includes, you know the roots of, of emotions. Emotion, you know, sometimes people like to kind of make this separation of like the heart and the mind, but the Buddhist perspective, when the word that the Buddhism uses for the mind is chitta, C-H-I-T-T-A. And uh, it translates as heart mind with this understanding that uh, our brains aren't separate from our emotions and that actually it is our brain that gives uh, rise to emotion. But of course, the heart, what we call that, center channel in the body is what experiences emotion. You know, they're both thoughts and what we call feelings as in emotional sensations in the body. And so we have these minds that are not self, not personal. It's not, you know, like the whole setup, as I said before, not your fault. You're just born with an impermanent body and a self-centered mind. Everyone is. Now, I do think that, um, you know, if we have enough adverse early life, adverse experiences, what we like to call traumas or extra difficulties, it does, it can change the wiring, you know, Uh, it can make it even worse, even more difficult. But the reality is it's difficult for everyone human life is just it's difficult for everyone everyone suffers and then you know many people suffer so much that we turn to substances and we turn to behaviors and we become addicted and and we you know respond to the pain of our life in uh, ways that actually just make it worse and worse worse and worse So part of the mindfulness uh, that we bring, uh, and tonight I mostly stuck with the body, but the third foundation is stop ignoring your mind and pay attention to your mind because you will see that your mind has a mind of its own. That we're not in control as much as you want to think we are. It's not as personal as we've been taking it. And you can start to pretty quickly as you practice mindfulness of of a a kind of what my teacher calls unentangled participation with your thoughts. So it's not a detached observation, but it's a not being so entangled in I am thinking, but this quality of experiencing the thought and participating with it. And you can investigate and, and start to identify how many of the thoughts are uh, intentional and how many are unintentional or volitional or non-volitional? And just like in your meditation tonight, what was your mind thinking about? And were you doing that on purpose? (laughs) Right? Were you sitting here, you know, doing the kind of shopping list for the week or the, uh, you know, intentionally plotting your revenge or intentionally worrying about some shit. Like, I think I'll just sit here during meditation and I'm going to worry about money tonight (laughs) or I'm going to feel lonely or whatever, you know, like it's the, as soon as you start meditating, I, I, you know, for most people it becomes so obvious. The mind just has its way with us. And we don't have that much control. We don't, we don't have control over it. We do have influence, like even in that simple practice of learning to break our addiction to our minds by paying attention to the breath, disengaging from the I, me, mind, doubt, fear, craving, stories in the mind, and just coming back to breathing in, breathing out. And it's so key. It's such an important skill to be able to disengage. But we can't do that forever. So, this is where the third foundation comes in of like, okay, break your addiction, your identification with the mind, but now develop discernment because the mind is also the uh, place where you're going to experience wisdom. Yes, it's filled with self centered sources of suffering, but it's also going to be, you know, the trained mind becomes an ally, becomes wisdom mind. And so you have to have that unentangled participation as we train the mind. And then you see more and more, oh, there's wisdom arising. There's compassion in my mind. There's easy non-attachment forgiveness. And all of that also experienced by the mind so this uh trap that some people get into right you kind of you come to meditation you're like well my mind's causing me suffering so i'm going to ignore it (laughs) and it feels better when i'm ignoring it what a dead end that is right what a temporary low level of relief is a relaxation technique meditation where you're just sort of replacing your thoughts and ignoring it rather than what the Buddha, this brilliant teaching from the Buddha of turn towards your mind and see it clearly. See that all thoughts are impermanent, that some thoughts are wise and wholesome and worth, uh, engaging with and some some thoughts are ignorant and confused and not we're you know just let it be impermanent and developing discernment that unentangled participation and uh, wakefulness of what is happening in our own minds So this list of the body and the mind, both are coming under this, uh, the three, you know, uh, three characteristics. Everything in the body is impermanent, is unsatisfactory because it's impermanent and it is impersonal or not self. Everything that arises in the mind, impermanent, unsatisfactory, Impersonal, not self. It's not who we are. We're not these bodies. We're not this mind. There's not a identity that we can, you know, cling to. It doesn't stop us from trying. But... <laughs> Third thing on the list, you know, the, the reality of we're born into this human body. We have a mind, and we have um feeling tone that everything that the mind and body experience are perceived are felt as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral everything every single sound that comes through the sense door of hearing instantly you decide Unconsciously, it's not even you deciding, the mind decides. I like that. I don't like that. <laughs> eh, neutral, neither liking nor disliking. Instantly, everything that the eye sees, there is an instinctual liking, disliking, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral perception of whatever uh, we experience through the eyes, through the ears, through the nose, through the tongue. And it's so easy to get stuck in our self-centered perspective that what I perceive as pleasant is pleasant. (laughs) Right? Of really not just having that wakefulness that's like, this is just my perception, but to really assign that meaning of like, I have great taste, (laughs) and what I like is the good shit. And anybody that disagrees with me, they're just wrong. You know, if you don't think uh, chocolate is delicious, you're just wrong. (laughs) If that's not pleasant to you, you know? Um, And so this is such a key to our happiness and again, to see that all of the feeling tones, all of our perceptions are changing, are impermanent. And much of it is, is very much impersonal. It's based on the conditioning of our life, of our culture, of our, um, you know, like, I don't know how many uh, Australians we have with us tonight, or, or you know, American folks, like uh, Vegemite, for instance the taste of Vegemite, you know, like how many people find that pleasant really? And, you know, millions and millions of, you know, Australians and maybe English and like they, it's just, it's delicious to them. Their perception is like, their conditioning is like, you eat that stuff from when you're a kid and it's just delicious, right? It's a, they have a pleasant perception of it, Um, but you know, it, for most people, I think, I could be wrong, but my, my sense is that for most people, if you don't grow up eating that shit and you try it, you're like, whoa, this is fucking disgusting. <laughs> this is unpleasant. How do you, How do you put spoonfuls of that shit on your toast? So this is the second, Uh, foundation of mindfulness, as the more we become mindful and we see what's happening in our body, what's arising in our mind emotionally, and we start to investigate pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Everything internally perceived that way. And the more we can name it and know it, the more we can take responsibility for, that's just my perception, that's not truth. Vegemite's not gross my perception of it is it's unpleasant that music isn't terrible just my perception is that it's it's not pleasant to me and my tastes and my preferences and my conditioned responses they're not the right ones and everybody else is wrong we each are just in this conditioned experience if we have different perceptions of what's pleasant and what's not pleasant and you can um avoid so much conflict in your life if you can, if we can learn to communicate and to, to uh, communication is part of it but it's just like that understanding of uh these are just my perceptions rather than it's the reality then it's the truth and there's a humility that comes with this kind of awakening of just because i experience something to be unpleasant doesn't mean you do just because i experience something to be pleasant doesn't mean everyone else does or has to agree with me so feeling tone mind body feeling tone and then there's the part of the mind, and, and then the next two are both parts of the mind that the Buddha breaks out. And he says, and then there's this um, way that we perceive the world based in memory, sense impressions of the past. And how we create this delusion of permanence based on memory. This A lot of the coming together of I am the same person that I was 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago is based on because I can remember it. Now, what we know is that our memories are imperfect and they're biased and, you know, the kind of uh, we make up all kinds of uh, stories about the past based on if it was pleasant or it was unpleasant or, you know. Uh, we really don't have a photographic uh, memory of what happened, but we have our perception and our stories about what happened. But memory is uh, unreliable and it is impermanent and it is impersonal and it is uh, unsatisfactory and it causes so much suffering. You know and and just reflecting on like in your meditation or in your life how much of the past thoughts does you know what's your mind's tendency in the memory do you remember the pleasant times are you somebody who reminisces a lot about the good old days that was so cool the 80s was the best and, you know, <laughs> girl, when I was a kid, growing up was you know we were fucking punk rock was dangerous. <laughs> it was so cool. You spend a lot of time in that, or is, or does your mind have a tendency to remember and create an identity around the pain? It was so painful. I've been through so many hardships. I've suffered so much. I. Um, you know, and, and really kind of get identified with the pain, the memories. Or future,? Right? How much, did I, you know, how much how much of the planning mind, the projecting ourselves, the creating of the future imagined self, is about like, how great it's going to be. How much fun that vacation is going to be. How wonderful, it's 2021, the suffering is over. Finally, 2020 was terrible, but the future is going to be awesome. The past sucks. The present sucks, (laughs) the future is going to suck. You know, just looking at how our, you know, does your mind have a tendency towards worrying? Or optimistic, uh, it's going to be great, fantasizing. Do we, you know, and and but this this skanda that's part of that the Buddha is talking about, he says, okay, there's a body, there's a mind, there's feeling tone, there's memory, and then the final one, consciousness. Now. Think about, you know, consciousness is that part of the brain that knows, that is mindful, that can receive the sense impressions of sound, of smell, of taste, of seeing, of emotions, that part of us that is conscious. Also included in in impermanent, consciousness is impermanent. Consciousness is unsatisfactory and consciousness is not self. It is not who we are. And there are so many really feeling seemingly wise beings that just stop and and turn consciousness into an identity and don't really wake up to consciousness is a impermanent, impersonal process that this human body gives birth to. If you have a body and a brain, you have consciousness. It's not, um, it's not our identity. It's not the big self or, you know, a lot of spiritual traditions turn consciousness into the soul, the spirit, the, uh, and the Buddha says, no, nope, no, nope, but it's just, uh, <laughs> just what the brain does. It's no big deal. <laughs> nothing to see here nothing to get attached to here don't worry about it it's just a, a natural byproduct of birth you're, you're conscious uh, it's, it's not you know don't get stuck there of like oh i'm conscious i'm so spiritual because i'm this consciousness like no no it's just everyone is <laughs> it's no big deal <laughs> nothing to see here people um i feel like I don't know how much this fits and but I feel like uh, there's like phases of spiritual development. There's that, from a Buddhist perspective, I'm, I'm going to diss, okay, but from a Buddhist perspective, there's that phase that um, most of us come in with, which is like, I am this body, this mind, I'm a human being and I'm seeking a spiritual experience. I would like to transcend this human experience because this is who I am and I wanna get rid of it. This sucks, (laughs) right? I wanna avoid it, I wanna, you know, enlighten it away. I'm a human being seeking spiritual awakening. And then there's that shift that some people like to get into where they say, well, I've become so spiritual I'm no longer identified with being this body. Now I realize I'm a spiritual being having a temporary human experience. I am the consciousness that knows this body and mind. Again, just a lack of deeper investigation. Where the Dharma takes us to is to understand that there's just a body and a mind and consciousness and memory and feeling tones. That's just what's unfolding here. And they are knowing themselves. Consciousness knows the thoughts and knows the sensations. And and there is no owner of that consciousness. It is not self, it is not who we are, it is not the reality. It's just the impersonal, impermanent phenomena of being that's unfolding. And when we can wake up to that, then we can stop suffering about it. (laughs) And we can say, oh, okay, this is all not so personal, but if I train my mind, my heart, I can learn to meet life with compassion. I can learn to meet the impermanent reality of this impersonal process with non-attachment. There is a way to navigate this humanness, this beingness without suffering about it and without taking it also seriously, personally, uh, gravely. Um, the beginning of this chapter you know starts with this uh, that that piece that I shared last week about um, about fuck the world about um, not falling into the trap of seeking our, our happiness from the Uh, The word, the world, the um, it said, the Buddha spoke of a middle path, a path that leads against the stream and between two dead ends. The first dead end is that of worldliness, of seeking happiness from the material or sensual experiences. And that all of this list of the five skandhas, if we're looking to the body as our source of happiness or to the mind as our source of happiness, or or pleasure, uh, pleasant sensations, or or clinging to consciousness as self, then we're stuck in this dead end of materialism. The, even the body, this material body. Um, the body is our vessel for training. It is our uh, responsibility to care for. It is the path to awakening. It is not self. I hope that this makes some sense to you. There was one more section in this um, chapter that I didn't get to that was about karma. I'll have to pick up there next week where we'll start with some conversation about, okay, if there's no self here, who owns the karma? That's what's on your mind, right? (laughs) Like, okay, well, if I'm not consciousness, where's this karma sticking to anyways? What's the vessel for the karma? We'll start there next week. Um, I can take one or two questions if there's any comments or clarifications about what I've shared with you tonight. And again, I do want to say, and I don't always say this, but like, here's the Buddha's teachings. It's my interpretation. You don't have to believe this shit. Reflect on it. See how it works in your life. You know, like really, it's it's for your contemplation, uh, for your practice, your investigation. Not like, I'm right and you know everyone else is wrong, or the Buddhism is the only truth. Check it out for yourself. Find your own your own way with it. Um, I see some questions coming in. Linda Lee, go for it. Uh, unmute yourself. Hi there. Hi. Um, um, I actually um, was, uh, I didn't have a question. Um, thank you for calling. Oh, you name. didn't? Oh, okay, I thought your hand no. got raised. Okay. But thank you. No thank problem, you. nice to see you. Thank you, you too. Okay, there was a couple questions in the, If I understand you correctly, you were reminding during the meditation that the entire truth can be found within ourselves. If that's the case, how does one embrace that without becoming self-centered? Surely we should also find at least some truth in the external, no? Um, Rick, what I was saying was, you know, quoting the Buddha saying that in this body. So, you know, it's this whole question that we're having. Is the body ourselves? The Buddha is saying in this very body, all of the Dharma, the liberating truth of impermanence will be revealed if you pay attention to your body. Now the re- and you, you know, the last part, the external, the reality is everything external will also reveal the Dharma. The Dharma is nature. If we see nature clearly, we'll see impermanence clearly. If we see impermanence clearly, we'll stop clinging. If we stop clinging, we'll stop suffering. So both internal and external. Amanda says, the bit about liberation being revealed in the body kind of blew my mind. Living with chronic pain often has me wanting to escape my body. Thanks for the insight. You're very welcome. Yeah, and it's hard when you're, experience is unpleasant, but also this teaching that has us say, okay, there's a body and then there's perception uh, of these impermanent feeling tones um, can really help us change our relationship to the chronic pain. Last question I'll end here it says Noah, if the body, mind, etc are not the true self, is there a true self? Would it be, those aspects without attachment. Uh, The Buddhist answer is there is no true self. There is no permanent abiding fixed self. The self is a phenomena that is created based in these five piles, these five skandhas. If you have a mind, a body, a perception, memory, consciousness, you will have the feeling I am, (laughs) the byproduct will be the feeling of self. But when you unpack and dismantle this human experience, you will find no permanent fixed self. The analogy that I use in the book and I'll end here is that the self is as real as a rainbow. (laughs) Rainbows are real, (laughs) they are real phenomena that's created by the right conditions if you have sunlight and moisture and earth and the four elements come together they will create this image and you will see it and it's a rainbow and you can see it and it's a real thing it's a real phenomena it's not it doesn't not exist same thing with the self If you have a mind and a body, you will have a self. And it's a real thing. It's not that it doesn't exist. It's just being born out of the conditions of having been born (laughs) into a body. If that makes sense, you're halfway there. Um, We'll end with that tonight. Uh, Class is done by donation. Please be generous if you can. I'm, you know, we have a big overhead here. I'm really trying to save the meditation center. Eventually we're going to be able to come back together and, and meditate together. We have to keep paying rent in order for us to have a place. I, I said last week, lots of meditation centers, yoga centers, everybody's closing. Cause they're like, well, we're just on Zoom. But um, if I lose the lease on this place, I don't think we'll be able to get, you know, it'll be quite difficult to get a new place. So I really want to save the meditation center, support the nonprofit. Many of you do that by becoming monthly supporters. If you're not already a monthly supporter, please consider it. There's a link in the chat that'll take you over to donations. If you can give, you know, five, 10, 15, 25, $100 a month, whatever you can give to help support. Uh, what we're doing so that we can continue to be here and have a place to meet, to do retreats, to do trainings, to do, you know, workshops, all of the things um, like cost money. I intentionally don't charge. I want everyone to be here regardless of ability to donate, but there's lots of costs associated um, and, you know, and supporting me as a teacher. So please be generous. Go over to the website, make some donations, Uh, Become a monthly supporter if you can and deep gratitude for for your participation. Thanks for being here tonight. We're here every Monday and also check out the other classes. Uh, Jason on Wednesdays, uh, Ward on Fridays, Rachel on Tuesdays and Sundays. Check out the other Against the Stream offerings. And I will see you guys next Monday where we'll start with karma and then we'll go into the monkey mind, training this impersonal mind of ours. May any goodness that comes from our practice be shared in all directions with all sentient beings. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.